0: Coming up this hour, there is a new president of the Southern Baptist Convention. We're going to discuss that. And then we're joined by Dan Britton as we talk about his new book about experiencing life-changing power of the Proverbs. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. really glad to have you with us today. We've been talking all week, Southern Baptist convention. Yes,
2: we have.
0: In some ways, you know, we're outside the Southern Baptist convention. So watch it. It feels like you're just kind of watching from afar, but I don't know about you. And and you and I are kind of like very closely tied to all this stuff going on. Uh, But uh I felt really kind of like I was checking Twitter like I was watching a game yesterday.
2: <laughs> like, I agree. It's been sort of like kind of a weird, twisted form of entertainment. I'm like, what's next? What's happening now? What's going on? Exactly. I wish I was there. I'm exactly. a little bit of like FOMO not being there.
0: <laughs> That's so funny. Uh, yeah, I've been to our friend Kate Shellnut from Christianity Today, she was live tweeting it. Uh, Bob Smetana, who's going to be on here uh in the in the coming days. He was live tweet like there's all this live tweeting going on. There's all on, this and live like,
2: coverage. Yeah. Yeah, what's going on?
0: And and the pinnacle of it yesterday, it really climaxed. It built towards the mm-hmm. election of JD Greer's replacement as the Southern Baptist president and uh the Southern Baptist convention president, I should say. And this was a really big deal because uh we've been talking the last couple of days that much of this convention was a crossroads. It was kind of like yeah. a um, a referendum on kind of the direction that the Southern Baptist Convention was going to go. And to give you some background, there were essentially three candidates. There were really four, but everybody knew the fourth uh, candidate didn't really have a chance. And you got to get 50%. And so in the first round, uh, a, a pastor, Mike Stone, who was, uh, really uh, the conservative Baptist network side, he was mm-hmm. kind of the uh, the very conservative wing of the Southern Baptist. He got the most number of votes, followed by Pastor Ed Litton uh, from uh, uh, he's a pastor out of Redemption Church in Alabama. He got the second most, but it was very close. And then Albert Moeller was kind of a distant third. So uh, Stone and Litton went into a runoff and it was really tense. It was super Close, uh, But Ed Litton ended up being elected as the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Basically, many of uh, Albert Moeller's votes ended up going to him. And so Mm -hmm. this kind of reckoning we were discussing, this crossroads between Ed Litton, who has built his career very much on uh, racial reconciliation, on uh, being a bridge builder, of Mm -hmm. trying to move the ball forward. You know, still very much a Southern Baptist, but. All of this versus the guy who was the, uh, you know, very conservative yes. from the conservative Baptist network. And there were a lot of people that if, if Mike Stone had won, uh, they thought a lot of the African-American churches were going to bail like this was a huge deal. And so there was a lot of rejoicing over Lytton winning, uh, but also a lot of reflection going, man, this was super close, uh, it really kind of shows the divide within the Southern Baptist Convention right now.
2: Yeah, we actually have a little bit of audio of the That's win right. that we wanted you to hear because you can sort of feel the drama even in the announcement. So let's go ahead and play that.
3: 13,131 messenger casting ballots. Mike Stone received 6,278 votes for 47.81%. Ed Linton received... 6,834 votes for fifty-two.
2: So you can hear the celebratory cheers from people when Ed Litton was announced. But as we know, like you said, Brian, only really he won by a very steep margin, right? A very slight margin. And, very slight. Um, so you do see how divided the SBC still is and... You know, I I think, hey, let's just celebrate that he did win and this feels like a new day for the SBC. Uh, I do wonder if sort of the more conservative um, category of Southern Baptists will decide to leave and start something new. I hope we don't see that kind of split happen, but I still think it could happen. And yeah, this feels lots of people on Twitter are rejoicing that this feels like the right leader. For the next season of right. the Southern Baptists.
0: Yeah. Dean and Sarah, pastor of the large SBC church of Tallahassee, Florida. He described Lytton as one of the most godly men I know in a tweet. And he said, we are in with capital letters, very good hands. Uh, and so a lot of people excited. Uh, Lytton was among the signers of the justice, repentance and the SBC in December of 2020 Uh kind of going against the heads of six Southern Baptist seminaries wow. after they issued a statement rejecting critical race theory. So uh, kind of, uh, you know, it kind of marks the path you you bring up. Will there be kind of a fracturing? I did see an interesting tweet about that this morning uh, in which what somebody. Yeah, they, they basically said this. Somebody who was very high up in this conservative Baptist network uh, who lost. They were they were really backing Mike Stone. Uh, he said uh, this person did this, said this, and it was a little ominous, but it, the way it was written, but did say, uh, while we did not win this election, it proves that we can win the next one.
2: Oh, so OK. OK. I
0: I don't think there's going to be a fracturing. I think there's going to continue to be a divide, though. There gotcha. is going to continue to be. And so uh, that was interesting. There were a lot of very uh, interesting resolutions to come out yesterday. Uh, around critical race theory, around uh, missions and other things, and so uh, kind of wanted to put a bow on that a little bit because you and I have been talking a lot about this, and I do want to uh, highlight something JD Greer said, and just get your your thoughts on this. JD Greer has been okay. the president for three years of the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, I would say Ed Litton is very much picking up the mantle of where J.D. Greer comes from versus Mike Stone kind of would have been going the opposite direction. Yes,
2: yes okay. I would say that's true. Yeah. So
0: J.D. Greer was giving kind of his closing remarks, and he went all in yesterday about Fer- Fa- the Pharisees, about wow. All of stuff. And here was his quote that was just getting a lot of tweets and a lot. I saw this all over my uh, Twitter page yesterday. Uh, He said this, whenever the church gets in bed with politics, the church gets pregnant and our offspring does not look like our father in heaven. Uh, Dang. The old, yeah. Who's writing
2: for him? Is that his oh. tweet or did he get a did he pay someone to craft that? That's no, good. It wasn't
0: even a tweet. He said that in his speech. Picture wow. that in front of 17,000 people Woo! of all different uh that was it. Why do you that think that's what boldness? The, exactly. Why do you think that's the direction he went? He's got like his last no, he's not going anywhere, right? He's going to play a huge role yeah. in the SBC, but he, his kind of parting words, he talked about Phariseeism and mm. uh, that they could be losing the next generation. And mm. then he kind of said this about politics in the church. Uh, why do you think that, I'll let you crawl into his head a little bit. Why do you think that's the direction he went?
2: You know, I my guess is he is looking back on the past, you know, election years, frankly, and um, seeing that, unfortunately, the the Southern Baptist Church has become so aligned with especially Trumpism, mm-hmm. whether everyone in the SBC is a Trump supporter or not, generally speaking, the outside world looks at Southern Baptists and thinks they're Trumpers. And my guess is what he's saying is that some of that has been true. And like we've talked about on the show before, we have a uh, really 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 entangled our our orthodoxy our orthopraxy our love of jesus we have entangled it so much with this sort of unhealthy nationalism that it really no longer looks like we're people about the kingdom of god but we look like we're people about a certain political party and it hasn't looked good to the outside world and i and my guess is he's kind of like hey this is my moment i'm gonna say it let's have a new day you know (laughs)
0: exactly let's let's be about something bigger than politics either side of the aisle let's be about god's kingdom uh and and when we mix too deeply politics and religion politics ends up being what wins and Mm. that's what the world sees so i thought that was i wanted to read that quote because i thought that was powerful so uh uh some conclusion at the SBC. It's still going on today, but kind of the pinnacle of that presidential election last night. And we'll see where the convention goes from here. Well, coming up next, we're excited to be joined by Dan Britton from Fellowship of Christian Athletes. He's a co-author of a book called The Wisdom Challenge, Experience the Life-Changing Power of Proverbs. We're going to talk Proverbs with Dan Britton next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm, and Aubrey and I are thrilled to be joined by Dan Britton. Dan is the Chief Field Officer at Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Uh, he's also the co-author, along with Ron Forseth, of The Wisdom Challenge Experience: The Life-Changing Power of Proverbs. Dan, how are you doing today, man?
1: Man, I am doing great. Thank you for having
0: me, Brian and Aubrey. It's absolutely our pleasure.
2: We're so glad to have you.
0: Yeah. Hey, Dan, before we dive into this book, and as Aubrey and I, Aubrey and I are both pastors, so talking about something like the Proverbs and helping people understand that is just is super exciting for us. But before we do that, uh, would you take a minute and just introduce yourself uh, to our audience so they could get to know you a little bit better?
1: Yeah, sure. I, uh, You know, I've uh, worked with Fellowship Christian Athletes for 31 years. Uh, That's awesome. I, I, isn't that a crazy? Three decades. And Yeah. Uh, people said when I started working with FCA, they're like, hey, what are you going to do when you really grow up? And so <laughs> I guess I haven't grown up. It's been 30 <laughs> years, right? Um, so they're like, you're still doing that FCA thing? I'm like, yep, I'm still doing the FCA thing. But, you know, I started out as a local area rep in, in Northern Virginia, graduated from the University of Delaware in 89, played lacrosse. My entire life, my dad was an All-American lacrosse player at the Naval Academy. He actually played against Jim Brown, the, the no famous way. football player. Yeah. They say Jim was actually a better lacrosse player than he was a football player. Mm. Back then, they didn't have pro lacrosse. But he, Jim Brown was at Syracuse. My dad was at the Naval Academy. And, and he when my dad was a sophomore, I had a chance to actually compete against Jim Brown. And my dad said he hit him as hard as he could. And uh, my dad said uh, he felt like he hit a hit a. A train you know
2: like <laughs> oh wow wow
1: so anyways and i have two older brothers we all grew up playing lacrosse football basketball lacrosse i went on played college played professional lacrosse again grew up in, in on the east coast served with fca for 13 years in northern virginia and then uh over 20 years ago moved to kansas city uh to, to here to kansas city to work out of our support center our, our world headquarters and now oversee our entire field both internationally and locally and so now God's allowed us here um, with FCA, which primarily was a U.S.-based ministry, for over 50 years in the last 10 years, God's allowed us to extend outside the U.S. borders, moving outside 4% of the world's population to 96%. And now we're in 107 countries. Can you believe that? That's amazing. Praise
2: God for that. That is awesome. Yeah.
1: So... Anyways, that's, that's a little bit about me with FCA. I, I married my high school sweetheart, Dawn, and I dated all the way through high school and college, dated nine years. That could be another podcast for you guys. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, and then we've been married for 30 years, so we've been together for almost 40 years uh, as a couple.
2: That is so awesome. Well, Dan, you are the co-author of a book called The Wisdom Challenge, Experience the Life-Changing Power of Proverbs. And we would love to just hear a little bit about that book and why you wrote it.
1: Well, it it really uh, was a broken play. It wasn't supposed to happen. Um, It's kind of a God thing. You know, God loves broken plays, right? Like Mm -hmm. things that we don't expect or didn't plan. And he kind of has a bigger plan for us. Mm-hmm. Ron and I have been friends for, for over 20 years, and, and he was with the organization. I was with FCA, and we were trying to partner. And so we thought, man, our well, this would be a phenomenal partnership between his organization at the time that he served as one of the vice presidents. I was with FCA as a vice president, and we got together probably 10 times at his headquarters, our headquarters, tried to work on things. Nothing materialized except for a friendship. Mm, <laughs> so, that's cool. You know, it wasn't meant to be for for us organizationally to partner together, but God br- brought us together uh, and created a great friendship. And in 2012, I remember the the day He called me up and He's like, "Hey Dan, um, last month God led me to read through Proverbs, and and it just really allowed me to get a hunger for God's Word again. And uh, I'd love to do do that with you this month coming up." And I said, "Oh, Ron, I've I've done a proverb a day, keep Satan away." it's it's 31 proverbs you you pick the day you it keeps you on track it's awesome i've I've done that for years and ron goes no 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 i i don't i don't want us to read proverbs separately he goes i want to i want to do it together and i'm like so like we read it together on the phone he goes no 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 you read it i read it and then each day we text or or email or phone call each other and let let each other know what god revealed Mm -hmm. to us what verse what insight what nugget what truth did, did God reveal to us? We share it with each other, and it's kind of like iron sharpens iron, as it says in Proverbs, yeah. that we'll get better. And I go, Ron, well, you know, I've never, I've always done Proverbs. I've never done it with someone like that. And he goes, wow. well, let's, let's do it. And I said, okay. And he goes, I call it the wisdom challenge. I go, well, that sounds cool. So I am telling you, like the first day I get his text, and it was like, oh, my gosh, that's amazing insight. God revealed this to me. Now we're like texting back and forth on, how God revealed truth to us. And the next morning, I couldn't wait to see what God was going to reveal to Ron. Was Mm. it the same verse? Was it going to be a different verse? How was God going to speak to Ron? How was God going to speak to me? And I'm telling you guys, like like after about 10 days, it was like this transformational thing that I've never experienced before. Going through Proverbs is the power of with, uh, Mm. going with someone. Mm, And Proverbs says, he walks with the wise, becomes wise. But he, companion of fools, stumbles. And, And I just thought, I I'm getting wiser because I'm doing Proverbs. with yeah. And it was a game changer. Absolute game changer.
0: That's awesome. Hey, a little bit of background of Proverbs. People listening may not know. Written by Solomon. Uh, how would you sum up the life of Solomon uh, as specifically as it's reflected in his prayer for wisdom above anything else? Help people understand that background a little bit.
1: Yeah, well, I like how you said that the, the prayer of uh, wisdom above everything else twice in Proverbs we Ron and I like to call it the the, the wisdom promise or we, we even say the nothing promise and the nothing promise is kind of a little bit more sticky and cooler. The nothing promises is twice in Proverbs he says Proverbs Solomon writes nothing is more valuable than wisdom and now that's a mm-hmm. blanket sweep isn't it that, that mm-hmm. is a bold statement. He says yeah. all the riches, all the jewels, all the money in the world, there's nothing more valuable than wisdom. And so here, here we have 31 chapters. Solomon wrote most of, of Proverbs. And and it is literally not about Solomon as a success, even though he's one of the greatest kings in, in biblical times. But he had a lot of failures and a lot of ups and downs. And through Proverbs, God reveals through Solomon these truths that we're allowed to be able to put into practice on a daily basis. Um, I love what... what um, uh, Chuck Swindoll, one of my favorite favorite authors and, and, and pastors, Chuck Swindoll says, "Wisdom is simply seeing things the way God sees things." Mm-hmm. Mm. And and what a great little short definition! And and so I look at Proverbs through that window, is that I get a chance uh, to thirty one short chapters, get to see things through wisdom, God's eyes, the way we should see and do life. Yeah.
2: Yeah, that's so good. So uh, Dan, I would just love to hear. So, so you and Ron are doing this together. You're studying the Proverbs. God is moving in powerful ways. How did that play out in your ministry? I'm assuming there's some moment where, you know, you're ministering to an athlete or you're, I don't know, you're overcoming a challenge and those Proverbs that were in your mind just, you know, became really accessible. So is there a moment where the connection between your study and real life took place?
1: Yeah, Aubrey, great point. I I, I would say this, that a, as we started going through the rest of the month, it was like a double blessing. I felt like I was getting what God was revealing to me, what God was revealing to Ron. It was like twice the blessing of revelation. And so I believe, Aubrey, like, like I became a better dad. I became a better mm-hmm. husband. I became a better leader because I was getting twice blessing. I was getting the double blessing of seeing Proverbs through not only my eyes, but a good friend of mine who was revealing God's truth to me, and he was challenging me on stuff. I was I was sharing things, like I was confessing things. Man, I'm bad at this. So I wasn't saying, Oh, all these problems are just things that I do well, but I suddenly got to the point that I was becoming a better leader and a better father because of it that's awesome
0: great dan Britton again is the chief field officer at fellowship of christian athletes co-author along with ron forseth of the book the wisdom challenge experience the life changing power of proverbs dan before we jump back into the book i'd love to go back to just what you do Uh, help people just briefly understand what is fellowship of christian athletes and what do you do with them
1: yeah thank thanks for asking that i Obviously, I'm passionate about it Given 30 years of my life to it. I was actually involved in college. I, I got introduced at University of Delaware when, when as an athlete, um, you know, here I'm going away. Didn't I only knew two people in the entire campus of 13,000. Those were two uh, other students that I knew from my high school. And I found FCA on Thursday night meeting with an other athletes in Carpenter Sports Building at 730. And we opened God's word. We applied God's word to our athletic uh performance and to our to our practice and to our mindset. And, and I tell you, God uh, allowed me to connect with fellow believers, like-minded believers. And I tell you, FCA basically, I always say, it combines my two passions, faith and sports. You put it together, you got FCA. Mm-hmm. So in 1954, Brian Aubrey, God led Don McClannan, who was a basketball coach in Oklahoma, to have this idea of gathering coaches and athletes under this banner of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And ever since 1954, God has used it now around the world to reach over 2 million coaches and athletes every single year. We're on schools. We're we're on over 15,000 junior high, high school, college campuses, small group Bible studies, the power of the circle, people huddling up together, opening God's word, still on public school campuses, still having access. Uh, I think FCA is one of the greatest ministries out there. And so you know we're we're helping coaches and athletes live out their faith on and off the field, and that's a false Christian athletes. That's great.
2: Oh, just love it. Love hearing that. So Dan, um, we're here to talk about your book, The Wisdom Challenge: Experience the Life Changing Power of Proverbs. But you are also the co-author of another book, which I am very excited about because I have three sons, and this is <laughs> called Called to Greatness: Thirty One Devotions to Ignite the Faith of Fathers and Sons. Can you tell us briefly about that book?
1: Yeah, I you know Jimmy Page and I not not that Jimmy Page of Led Zeppelin. <laughs> I was like, wait, Jimmy Page. Yeah, I know, I know. People ask me that all the time. I'm like, really, Jimmy P-? No, I'm like, not that Jimmy Page. So Jimmy, Jimmy and I have been 30 year friends, and and I got to know him right after I got out of college. FCA brought us together, and and literally we 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 we've, we've been accountability partners for 30 years, and, and God allowed us to to write a very first book together. Actually, it's called Wisdom Walks, which is. About a discipleship model of being a walker yourself, having some warriors in your life, a watchman, and a workman, and basically it's the discipleship model that the Bible lays out for us. But several years after that, Jimmy and I decided that that one of the greatest needs is fathers and sons to connect, and we started looking. And, and literally, guys, there was no devotionals or resources out there for fathers and sons to come wow. together and grow in their faith. So that led us to, to sharing with our publisher. Uh, Broad Street going, hey, we, we want to have a devotional that we could be able to have where fathers and sons come together, they agree and commit together to go through these devotions together, written with the mindset of that relationship and helping them strengthen. And, and out of the seven books that I, I've written, it sold a lot of books, but probably not as many as some of the other ones. Yeah. But, the, but the testimonies that we're hearing back from called the greatness, the emails that we hear, the calls that we get, I'm telling you transformational some of the best wow. because I, I just think you know again that God the father when we have this moment of, of of baptizing the son he literally says uh that Jesus is his beloved yeah and, and I'm well pleased with him and we simply say can you imagine if every son heard those words that I am pleased with you those five words would change instantly the father-son relationship. And so that's kind of the context of the book.
0: That's great. That's great. Uh, speaking of wisdom, Dan, why why do you think that God put such great value on wisdom? And I, I'd follow that up also with then, how do we obtain wisdom? How, how can we grow in wisdom?
1: Well, you know, uh, it starts, uh, you know, it's kind of funny over and over again in Proverbs, it talks about, you know, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And, you know, some people take that phrase and they go down a rabbit trail and they go down diff- different ways. But it's having that awe and that reverence and that true understanding that, that we serve a mighty and awesome God. And, and I think in today's world, we kind of dismiss that and we kind of pass over, oh, the fear of the Lord. Like, let's just get wisdom. And it's like, no, no, let's back up. That's actually where it starts. And for us as followers of Christ, to have a firm understanding that, that there is a fear of the Lord that governs and, and rules our life, that drives us to obedience and sacrifice before God. And and when we have that understanding, Aubrey and Brian, we know that, that God reveals wisdom in our hearts. And so nothing replaces wisdom. And so we got to start with that. Mm, so
2: good. Um, do you feel like in this day and age – wisdom is almost countercultural and if so why
1: i do i do i I think people uh rather seek information rather Mm. than transformation right Mm, And information we, we we have more information at our fingertips than ever we're overwhelmed with information i have one of my life principles is we drift to complexity but we drive to simplicity right? Mm. Because right now in the world of information, we suddenly overnight, the next day, the following week, the following month, the following year, we are overwhelmed with complexity because of all the information overload that comes in. But Mm. instead, we have to drive to simplicity. And I believe that's what wisdom is all about. Wisdom is about transformation, okay? Not information. And we have to be able to get out of our comfort zone. And I believe wisdom is only applied When we get out of our comfort zone and we're stretched by God Almighty, by circumstances Mm. around us, and when that wisdom, when when we're stretched with experiences, I believe God reveals that wisdom. But it has to start with getting our face in the book. Right, guys? We have to get our face in the book. And I've just been blown away how many believers just don't, they assume like, okay, I don't need to get in God's word daily. And we have to get in God's word daily to get that wisdom. That's
0: right. Yeah. And Dan, with like the minute or two we have left, you, you rightfully linked wisdom to the fear of the Lord. We read that in scripture. Help people understand uh, what the fear of the Lord is and how that leads to wisdom.
1: Well, I, 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 you know, again, that's one of those concepts where the more you, it's almost like that diamond that you turn and has so many angles to it and so many dimensions to it. But for me, as I look, like I just I, I grew up uh, in a Christian home, and man, I I fear my mom and dad. If I mm-hmm. stepped out of bounds, man, bam! It was the, the the day of reckoning was coming. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I just know that that through that there was a, a a healthy fear of my parents. I didn't fear them like I trembled and you know I, I didn't want to see them. But I knew that 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 fear, that proper fear kept me in line. Man, it it allowed me to have guardrails. And I think Mm. the same thing with, with, with God almighty that nowadays we don't, we don't look at God the same way I looked at my parents that, that, Hey, there's guardrails that he disciplines those he loves, you know? And that's what that having fear is, is that I want to live my life in those, those boundaries so I can enjoy all of God's blessing and all of God's abundance. See, when you stay in those boundaries, you experience the fullness of God. Yeah. I understand the boundaries of my parents. I experience the fullness of my parents and the family. And that's what God has for us.
0: That's That's good. Dan Britton, again, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Go get the book, The Wisdom Challenge, Experience the Life-Changing Power of Proverbs. You can learn more about Dan and his book at wisdomchallenge.com. Again, that's wisdomchallenge.com. Dan, it's so good to meet you. We're going to have you on again sometime just to talk about lacrosse, help uh, Midwesterners (laughs) learn about lacrosse. Hey, hey,
1: let's do a full show on lacrosse. Yeah. Hey, (laughs) By the way, by the way, real quick. Yeah, go ahead. They call it the Crater's Game. And there's a reason for that. Right. Why? Yeah. It's because the Indians created. It came from the Indians, the the, the, the Iroquois Indians here in, a, in the U.S. And they say literally lacrosse was a, a gift that, that God gave the Indians to play, to entertain uh, the creator. So it's, oh, got, that's it's, it's got great roots. I think we should do a show on it.
0: There you go. And I think you'll bring the passion. So, yes, Dan Britton, again, uh, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Go check out wisdomchallenge.com. That's wisdomchallenge.com. Dan, it is a great pleasure to meet you, man. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Awesome time. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. friends welcome back to the common good here on am 1160 hope for your life uh, alongside aubrey Sampson. my name is brian Fromm, and aubrey and i are thrilled to be joined for a little bit by melanie rayner melanie is the director of women's ministry at christ presbyterian church in nashville tennessee and we want to talk to melanie about an, uh, an article that she co-wrote at the gospel coalition called why we should return to church melanie thanks so much for joining us how are you doing today
4: I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me.
0: It's absolutely our pleasure. Melanie, before we jump into this article, which I think is so timely and so important, could you just introduce yourself to our audience so they can get to know you a little bit better?
4: Sure. My name is Melanie Rayner, and as Brian said, I am the Director of Women's Ministry at Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville. I've been on staff here for almost two years, and it's a great joy to be on staff here with the awesome team that we've got. We have four locations. My background is I have a master's degree from Covenant Seminary, and I worked in Christian publishing for a long time before moving over into vocational ministry, and I
2: absolutely love it. Mm. Oh, that's fantastic, Melanie. Well, we wanted to talk to you, like Brian said, about your article, Why We Should Return to Church. And Brian and I are both pastors, so this is a passion, a point of ours. And one Mm -hmm. of the things that you talk about in this article is kind of the other side of the argument, which says, hey, you know, we're choosing to worship in spirit, not in person. If Paul worshiped from prison, we can worship from our mm-hmm. TV screens or from our phones, and I- isn't it easier to be present in church when we're z- when we're online rather than in person? And you answer really emphatically, "No, we need embodied worship," mm-hmm. and so we would just love to hear more about that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the
4: the impetuses for writing this article was was dealing with my own and my co writer's own experiences during the pandemic. So what about church became sweeter by being at home? And what did mm-hmm. we end up missing? What are the things that that left us wanting more? And so why did God create this innate longing in us to gather with his people and worship his name. And we felt like scripture offered so many indicatives for that. And so our imperative is to gather as the church. But I think about like back in the early days of the pandemic, you know, we were we were recording our church services mm-hmm. on Thursday to show on Sunday. And Sunday mornings became this this really sweet time with my family. I have I have two young kids, two young girls, and and Sundays are normally anything but a family day right like running around and we're getting ready and as pastors you guys understand i get up at the crack of dawn and i leave (laughs) and i see my kids and they show up at church and and all of a sudden sunday mornings were slow and we made pancakes every sunday and mm. we sang together and mm. it was just this very sweet thing but something was was missing and so as soon as the church doors opened we were back and and so many of our friends were back so what is this longing that the lord had created in us even though we can worship we did worship we participated in the life of the church from a screen but it didn't feel it didn't feel full it didn't it didn't feel complete. God places yeah. longing right. in our hearts to, to be together as the communion body of Christ. So yeah. that was a lot of what we wanted to explore.
0: That's really good. Melanie, uh, we're all reading statistics. As we told you out there, both Aubrey and I are pastors. And here in Illinois, things are kind of behind where you guys are in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of at the front end of reopening uh, and all of this stuff. But uh, all the statistics we read, or we heard Craig Rochelle said this week out in Oklahoma, that kind of across the board, people are slow to come back. And and I wonder if, um, you know, if only half the people are coming back at this moment or whatever else, why do you think that is? What does that say about mm. kind of the perception people have had of church and why people are feeling, quite frankly, comfortable not going back right now?
4: So I think there are a couple of things at play there. I think there are, there is this amazing opportunity to be re-engaged in the world. And so I know, from our congregation and, and from friends, you know, everyone is traveling and they're seeing family and friends that they haven't seen in two years. Right. Mm-hmm. So yes, so by its very nature of being a weekend activity, I think that people are, are, are doing things on the weekends that they haven't been able to do and, and seeing people that they love and, and doing those things. But I think that somewhere in you know, in our, our sort of Western individualistic perception of our relationship with Christ, it's become, well, what am I doing with Jesus? Hmm. So am, am I worshiping? Am I doing my devotions? Am I reading my Bible? And so how do we remind people or teach them for the first time that they? gathered worship as a body that engaging in community are critical pieces of our Christian walk when so much has become individualized um, because of, of sort of quiet times and and those sorts of things that we grew up with. um, You know, how do we, how do we teach people that, that the gathered gathered worship is the central expression of our faith and of our walk? And it has been for centuries Um, And so I think there's a retraining and a reteaching, but there's inviting people into the sweetness of that, that we have to, Mm. their their lives, our lives should revolve around church. Church shouldn't fit into our very busy
2: American lives. Mm. Mm. That's so good, Melanie. I I heard a, a really popular sort of, you know, author, speaker, podcaster recently who kind of was saying she wasn't going back to church because nature had become her church or her front Mm -hmm. porch had become her church. And I kind of was like, no, that can be where (laughs) you meet God. That's Mm -hmm. not the church. The church is that, you know, this embodied group of people who are practicing sacraments and following Mm -hmm. Jesus, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which I love. um, I love the fact that you're talking about in this article for our listeners who may be in that frame of mind. Hey, I don't need to go to church because I'm connecting with God. Uh, on Sunday mornings with my husband when I take a walk or, you know, Mm -hmm. in my living room with my kids, Uh, you've touched on this a little bit, but what would be your encouragement to those people to maybe take a step back into Christian Mm -hmm. community?
4: I would say that, that, your relationship with God is is central, right? It should be the most important relationship in your life. But as part of Christ's incarnation and as part of the way that God created the local church, it was for us to be in community, and that is this like one of the, m- the most beautiful gifts that the Lord gave us is Christian community. It's in being the body of Christ, and Paul talks yeah. about this all of the time. And a body is, is made up of many parts, which we know. And that when we're all together, there is a, a, a community that is built and you will, you will lean on that community in ways that you don't even see now. Um, and so your relationship with God may be a beautiful, flourishing thing. But the community that he has given you and that he is calling you into is his way of working in the world, in your life and in the lives of the people around you. Mm. So when you remove yourself from Christian community, there is an, an, an imperative that scripture gives us that we're, we're missing. And the fullness and flourishing of God's people looks like being together.
0: Uh, again, Melanie Rayner is the director of women's ministry at Christ uh, Presbyterian Church in Nashville. Melanie, before we let you go, uh, where can people connect with you, social media or wherever else? Maybe they want to read these articles. Where can people find you?
4: Oh, they can find me at melanie rainercom or on Instagram and Twitter. Um, and then a lot of my work comes through Christ Presbyterian Church, which you can find at christpres.org.
0: Yeah, and people might recognize the name of that church. Our friend Scott Sauls is the lead pastor there at Christ Presbyterian Church. And uh, you can tell Scott that we still quote him all the time on our show.
4: uh, I will. I will. We are
0: are grateful for him. Melanie, thanks so much. Such an important article, something the church is really going to have to wrestle with here as we come out of the pandemic. Thanks for spending some time with us.
4: Thank you so much.
0: Absolutely. We're glad you're joining us today. Uh, Coming up next hour, we're going to talk about generosity. And then we're joined by Jeff Mingi, lead pastor at Catalyst Church in Newport News, Virginia. You're listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life.
2: Coming up this hour, we're talking about how we can become more generous people. And then we're joined by Jeff Mingi, author and pastor of several books on forgiveness and more. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good on this Wednesday afternoon. All right, Brian, we are talking generosity because okay. something kind of significant happened Uh, Recently, Mackenzie Scott, who was the wife of Jeff Bezos, donated $2.7 billion. That's a
0: B. That's a B, yes. That's a B (laughs) for
2: those who didn't hear that. $2.7 billion. I can't even imagine having that to donate. Um, really citing racial disparity and the wealth gap. And so she worked with a team of people to give away a fortune in order to make change. We actually have yeah. a little audio coverage of that story that you can listen to right now. Mackenzie Scott,
4: the ex-wife of Amazon founder Jeff Bezos, giving away billions of dollars to charity. Scott donated $2.7 billion to more than 250 different organizations, citing concerns about an increasing concentration of wealth among a few individuals. Scott says this is a signal of trust in those companies that she's working with. Back in 2020, she gave $6 billion to COVID relief and to several
2: HBCUs and other schools. Okay, so, Brian, what did you think when you saw that?
0: Uh, It's amazing just to see billion. And I want to just speak first to the people who are going who are immediately go, well, she's got that much. But, you know, she has 60 billion dollars or whatever. It's still two point seven billion dollars. No matter how many billions you have, it is still two point seven billion dollars. And you know what she didn't have to do? She didn't have to give it away. She did. it. she
2: could have given away a million dollars. She yes, could have given exactly. away you know like a billion but she, she this was generous period.
0: Or she could have given away none of it. I would encourage yeah, you to right. google I would encourage you to google some of the billionaires and their philanthropy uh and and you'll see that not every billionaire is doing what she's doing here. So mm. I wanted to start there because I I you hear that people going, well, you know, it's nice to have billions of dollars to give away. She still gave it away. So that's one. And two, it's very strategic. Uh, like yeah. you said, there was a team put together, uh, but it says this. I, I found this line to be amazing. She said, in this effort, we are governed by a humbling belief that it would be better if disproportionate wealth were not concentrated in a small number of hands and that the solutions are best designed and implemented by others. And so mm. uh, she didn't come out and be like, the government should give all the money away. She didn't come out and say that she said. Uh, you know what? I've got roughly, sure, her wealth is estimated at roughly $60 billion and growing. Wow. Uh, but, but, uh, she, she's got this, um, this belief that, you know what? I'm going to use this money in order to, um, support and enable people who can do great things with it. And so she, her personal passion is towards a lot of racial equity organizations. Uh, She gives a lot to historically black colleges and universities and other schools. Uh, And in 2020, she made two similar surprise announcements, donating a combined $6 billion to COVID-19 relief and other things. Uh, and so even if you don't agree with the organization she gave to uh the fact that she's been giving this much money away is amazing and i think she a should be applauded and it opens up a bigger conversation about generosity because again you might not have 60 billion dollars but there there is uh, a self-serving aspect to generosity that i'm sure she's experiencing that i sure. think is biblical and we all need to wrestle with
2: yeah, I mean, I think it's a, a really powerful example of, um, Really of giving to something that you're passionate about, right? Again, we don't all have $2.7 billion, but I do think the example of, okay, are there uh, minority businesses in my town that I can give to? Are there locally owned restaurants in my community that I can give to? Is there an issue that I am really, really, really passionate about? Maybe it's anti-trafficking. Maybe it's getting Bibles overseas in closed countries, maybe, you know, maybe it's missions, whatever it is. And then you sort of think, okay, Lord, am I, I'm passionate about this thing. Am I putting my money where my mouth is like Mackenzie Scott did to try to make a difference? And it's, it's cool. I mean, I think this is really cool. And I appreciate that she's being very intentional about, you know, you know, I know this can be controversial, but the reality is there is economic disparity and the billionaires have such a small percentage or such a massive percentage of the popu- uh, money, and right. they're such a small percentage of the population. So the fact that she's actually like, you know what, I'm going to do something about this, and it's going to be significant. I-, I wish we all had that sort of heart of generosity.
0: And there's a movement going on. It says shortly after her split with her husband, uh, the 51 year old signed the giving pledge, a commitment developed by Bill and Melinda Gates and Warren Buffett to get the world's richest to give a majority of their wealth during their lifetimes or in their mm. wills. And so there is this movement, but then, you know, you and I don't, not sure we covered the story in the last week or two, uh, that came out about, uh, the number of billionaires who've paid zero income tax in, in the, in the oh. past couple of years. And so their, oh. their, their ears, um, you know, just because people have a lot of money doesn't mean they want to give away a lot of money. And so it does yeah, get yeah. at the heart. I think there's a bigger conversation here, Aubrey, about you and I are pastors. We talk about this from the pulpit, but I'm sure we also struggle with it because we could also get into this mood where we go, well, if I had a billion dollars, I'd give a lot away, too. And I don't right. think, A, I don't think that's true. right? And B, that's losing sight of what generosity actually is. right? There the Bible speaks of generosity as an invitation. There you that, go. Th- that to be generous is an invitation that we are given into something better. And and when we, quote unquote, don't have a lot of money. Right. I know that I'm really poor compared to Mackenzie Scott. I'm really rich compared <laughs> to the villager in Africa. Yeah, right. It's all right. a matter of perspective. That's right. Uh, but why don't you speak to that? Because we've I'm sure we've both preached many on this. When we yeah. see money and generosity as a burden, we will never we will never be generous people. But when we see it as an invitation and that we become better people, or we experience greater joy, I think we run towards it. And that's a huge message within the Bible.
2: Yeah, I mean, obviously, we know that Scripture tells us that God loves a cheerful giver. And what we also know is that everything we have is God's. It's not ours. And so we are literally here as stewards, caretakers of what God has given us. And so honestly, it should be our first instinct to give away. It would be our, uh, it should be our our first Uh, yeah, our first instinct to go, okay, Lord, uh, this is your money. What do you want me to give to? And then we should do it joyfully. And sometimes I think this is where practice makes perfect. Like, try taking Mm -hmm. a step of faith and giving a little bit to something you're passionate about. I know for me, like, I'm if I had Mackenzie Scott's money, I think I would be giving also to uh, minority owned businesses. I'd be giving to women owned businesses. I'd be giving to Zambia because Kevin and I are really passionate about that. I'd be doing what I could do to help um, decrease the racial disparity in wealth. Those would be things I'd be passionate about giving to. And I think like hearing myself even say that now, I'm like, you know what? I can give in small ways right. to those things now. What about you, Brian? Mm-hmm. What would you give to if you had Mackenzie Scott's $2.7
3: Yeah,
0: I, I think my struggle initially would be not giving any of it away.
4: Yeah,
0: Not actually believing uh, you know, what it is uh, that we preach all the time. Like, I and I want people to understand that we as pastors struggle with this as much as anybody going. That's right. Yeah. Okay. God, it's an invitation to give, but yeah, if you gave me a little more money, maybe I'd give it away or maybe, and that's not the message of scripture. It's, it's like, you, you know, we think about the church in the Bible where they're like, they were, they were begging to be able to give more money away. And you're like, I don't really get that. But if I got to the <laughs> point of giving away, like you said, uh, I would want to be building into the next generation locally mm. like how can I be um helping kids get to college how can that's i good. be uh helping people uh who aren't able to you know to uh do high school or whatever else it might be great, that's kind right. of where my heart would pull towards and i i would want to blow some churches away and just be like hey I've been a pastor i know what like a hundred grand could do to a church i'm gonna give you a million bucks what uh, are you wouldn't do that with
2: be that? wouldn't that be amazing well like, i think, think this about, is a
0: Yeah, go If you had a number of churches that you believed in and they were gospel centered and stuff that you could be like, listen, I'm going to remove your financial burden because I believe in you. Imagine somebody doing that to you as a pastor. You'd be like, oh my gosh, that's the craziest thing. So
1: what a cool story.
2: What a great story. This is an inspiration for all of us, wherever you are right now, maybe ask God, okay, God, with the wealth that you have given me, what can I give to uh, keep your kingdom going and to love other people and to be that joyful giver? Well, stick around. Uh, Pastor Jeff Mingy is going to be joining us. He is the author of many books, including one on forgiveness. But we're also going to be asking a very interesting question with him. What if Martin Luther had picked up his phone? That should be a good one. So stick around. You're listening to The Common Good.
0: Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm, and we're thrilled to be joined again, somebody we had on a couple months ago. He's the lead pastor of Catalyst Church in Newport News, the author of several books, including Forgiveness, A Risk Worth Taking. We're going to talk to him also about his Gospel Coalition article entitled, What If Luther
3: Had Picked Up His Phone? His name is Jeff Mingy. Jeff, thanks for coming back on. How are you doing today? Doing well, Brian. Thanks so much for having me, Aubrey. Great to uh, see you. Great to be here again. Yeah, it's absolutely our pleasure. Hey, Jeff, for those of uh, people who don't know you,
0: before we uh, get started, why don't you introduce yourself so our audience can get to
3: know you a little bit better? Sure thing. My name is Jeff Mingy, married to Lauren. Uh, we live in the southeast corner of Virginia in Newport News with our two boys. We now have a middle schooler and a high schooler. So we're Ooh. entering into Ooh. that stage of life. And I'm the senior pastor at Catalyst Church, which we planted almost nine years ago. And I work uh, with our state convention in church planting as well.
2: That is awesome. Okay. So, Jeff, I got to jump right into this because you wrote an article for the Gospel Coalition a few days ago titled, What if Luther had picked up his phone? And listeners, if you have time, you need to Google this because there's literally an illustration of Martin Luther with a cell phone in his hand. It's very entertaining. (laughs) But can you tell us a little bit about what caused you to write that article, Jeff?
3: Sure thing. And I agree. That image alone is worth uh, (laughs) worth the Google search. It's a phenomenal uh, image. So Luther is a model of what it looks like to wrestle with a biblical text. Mm. Uh, He, and and I dive into this a little bit in the article, really wrestled with Paul's uh, words about the righteousness of God and the righteousness that comes by faith. And I wondered, as I find myself scrolling Am I able to think deeply as Luther did,
1: hmm. and
3: what are the implications of that? And it's it's uh, sort of an absurd question. What if Luther had picked up his <laughs> right, phone? Right, right. But it challenges us to think. Wait a minute. What's happening when I do pick up my phone? Am mm-hmm. I able to think deeply? Am I um, am I missing out on some of the deep treasures of God's word? Yeah. Uh, And Jeff, help people understand even uh,
0: what is deep thinking? Because I think you're right. Social media, just scrolling kind of makes everything superficial. So maybe paint a picture for what deep thinking even looks like.
3: That's a great question. So I would draw a distinction between deep thinking and shallow thinking. Um, Nicholas Carr, in his book, The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains, He uses the illustration of the difference between scuba diving and jet skiing. Mm -hmm. Scuba diving, you go down, you unearth treasures that have long been uh, stuck in the mud, in the muck. Uh, Jet skiing, you scoot along the surface. So if we apply that to thinking, in deep thinking, we're scuba diving. We're saying, okay, hold on. Why did Paul use that word there? Why did he... Coin that phrase, or 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 how did his logic lead him there? In jet skiing, we're just re, we're just skimming along the surface, and there's there's certainly a place I think uh, for um, the m- capturing the breadth of s- scripture and, mm-hmm. and going sure, wide, sure. but also as Luther models, going deep in our thinking. So deep thinking, I uh, would contrast it with s- shallow thinking, and and specifically in this article, I apply, okay, what does it mean to think deeply about the things of God?
2: Mm, That's good. Okay. So let's just get really practical here for a minute, Jeff. If someone's, um, you know, scrolling through their feed or whatever it is they scroll through and they kind of recognize, oh, I'm doing the mindless scroll right now. What would your advice be to them in that moment? Like, what can I do instead of the mindless scroll?
3: Sure. That's a, that's a great question. I think uh, part of it is simply recognizing it. The, the, one of the hard parts of uh, this trap that we get caught in of scrolling is that we don't realize it um, until something externally comes along and says, okay, you need to stop this. Uh, So when we realize it, recognize that's, that in itself is a gift of grace and you're doing well by simply recognizing the fact that, that you are scrolling. Uh, The first thing to do is very simple. It's to stop. Stop scrolling, um, to, to, to either turn the app off or turn the phone off or, uh, put the phone away and to simply step away from that sort of, um, treadmill of, of scrolling that, you know, your thumb sort of automatically goes into that rhythm and your eyes just glaze over. So the first step I would say is to s- stop scrolling. And then the second is to find something worth meditating on, mm. um, whether that's a particular passage of scripture or, for example, this morning, I went out on our back porch and just sat for a few minutes. Mm-hmm. My phone was not on the back porch with me and uh, listened to the birds chirp. I had, uh, had my Bible, read my Bible, and I just sat and listened. Um, so those two first steps, two two first uh, sort of steps, stop scrolling and then find something worth meditating on. That's yeah. great. It- it sounds so simple because I did literally did
0: that yesterday after work. I was going to bring my phone outside and I was like, no, I'm going to leave it inside. And I just sat in a chair on our deck and was just like, oh, it's kind of pretty out here. Like it, it sounds so simple. Uh, Jeff, what are some other uh, maybe guidelines that you personally use around social media, around scrolling? I would love for people just to hear, OK, you wrote this article. What,
3: what actually do you do during the course of your day? Sure. Well, I wrestle with it, to be honest with you. Uh, I I write articles like this, not as an expert, um, Mm -hmm. but as a a fellow struggler and pilgrim. Um, I'm I'm writing these things because I I don't always like who I'm becoming. As Mm -hmm. I look at my scrolling habits and the way I neglect people around me, I think, oh, my goodness, this is not good. Uh, There's just, there's just too much joy in uh, the life I have in Christ to spend it scrolling through social media. Um, So what, what do I do? A couple of things. I try to be mindful of it. Just like we just talked about. I'm a big fan of a reader's Bible. Mm -hmm. Uh, I purchased an ESV reader's Bible. I went for a little bit more expensive uh, edition because I like the feel of it in my hands so when I pick that Bible up in the morning, I, I can, I can feel it with my fingertips and the pages feel, feel good. The, the words are easy to read. Um, so right now I'm reading the book of Titus 20 times in a row, not in one sitting. Uh, but I've got a little post <laughs> it note at the beginning of Titus. And every time I finish it, I make a check mark. And, uh, that's my way of saying, okay, in a world of scrolling, let me take a long approach mm-hmm. to this one book. Um, and, I, by the time you've read a book 20 times, uh, you start to get an idea of the flow of the logic and phrases, uh, stand out. And so, um, again, I'm wrestling with this myself. Right. I, um, I, I put a lot of stock into that, that ESP yeah. readers Bible. Yep.
2: Yeah, that's great. Um, Okay, so something that you talk about in this article is uh, advise people to put boundaries on their device. And you mentioned something called a phone foyer method. Can you explain to our listeners what that is?
3: Sure. That's an idea that Cal Newport, who is he is an expert in this field, has (laughs) has written about. Um, He he suggests that you leave your phone in the foyer of your house. Mm. Don't, don't take it into the bedroom. Don't take it into the living room. Don't take it, um, uh, into the family dining room, leave it in the foyer. And if you, if you want to use your phone, you have to go to the foyer. That's the concept is mm. that there's, it has a specific location boundary and it's not allowed outside those boundaries. I think it was uh, Bob Goff, I could, I could be wrong, but I think he says that he will only check email when he's wearing a suit.
2: <laughs> wow, same, interesting. Same yep. Yeah. Yeah,
3: and he says I'm not going to check it on my phone unless I have a suit on. So if I'm sitting in bed and I want to check email, I've got to put a suit on. <laughs>
0: I picture yeah. Bob Goff laying in bed in a suit. Yeah, you're <laughs> <Just>, right. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's really good. That's really good. Again, Jeff Mingy is the lead pastor of Catalyst Church in Newport News, Virginia. Uh, we've been talking to him about his Gospel Coalition article, What If Luther Had Picked Up His Phone, this wrestling with scrolling and social media. Back uh, about a year ago, a little less than a year ago, you had a book come out called Forgiveness, A Risk Worth Taking that that tackles this really difficult concept of forgiveness by looking particularly uh, at the book of Philemon. I absolutely love the book of Philemon. Could you help people uh, just kind of understand the book of Philemon and what we learn about forgiveness from that really short
3: book? Absolutely. Glad to be here. So the book of Philemon is written by the Apostle Paul uh, to a man named Philemon, who was a church leader in um, many scholars believe he was likely wealthy. A house, uh, a church met in his house. Um, uh, Philemon was also a, a slave owner. He had a number of bond servants that worked under him. One of which was named Onesimus. Well, through a series of events, uh, Onesimus is no longer in Philemon's house. Onesimus the uh, meets. Paul becomes a Christian, and then Paul writes this letter to Philemon to to help these two brothers in Christ find unity, even though they come from a very uh, difficult background. Um, And and so a lot of this book, uh, this letter, is about the issue of forgiveness.
2: Mm. Mm, That sounds so good. And Jeff, I think, you know, hearing that, what sometimes it's hard for us to reconcile is that forgiveness is it's costly, right? Forgiveness mm. is not an easy thing, um, especially in situations where we've been very hurt. And I, I just wonder, l- let me lean into your pastoral heart a little bit. For anyone who is listening and maybe they're harboring unforgiveness for someone who has hurt them or betrayed them, and they recognize how costly it would be to forgive that person, what wisdom would you offer them?
3: Well, you're right. It is a hard topic. It's, it's a difficult one. And so if I was, I was, if I was sitting down at a table with somebody and, and they're, they're harboring bitterness, they're harboring resentment and, and unforgiveness. Um, the first thing I would, I would probably do is, is simply try to affirm them and understand that they're right to feel hurt. Mm. It, it does hurt. We, I don't think we honor the Lord by calling uh, by ignoring the things that, that hurt us. Um, so, so that would be part of it. And then I would simply point them to Christ. I would, I would help them know that Jesus knew what it was like to be hurt as well, deeply hurt by people who were very close to him. Yeah. And, um, I think that's what one of the things that Paul does in this letter to Philemon uh, uh, is, is he points Philemon back to Jesus Christ. And, and the fact that, OK, even in the midst of conflict, you have this opportunity to display the gospel. Right. And one of the challenges I think we have in, in issues of unforgiveness is that we see the other person not as they are in Christ, but mm-hmm. as they are in our conflict. And so all of a sudden we've got this lens of conflict on and we can't see them in any other way. We only see them through the lens of this conflict. And uh, Paul in this letter says, remember, Onesimus is now a Christian. He's Mm -hmm. in Christ. I think that's going to be a key principle and and lesson for us to learn in these very uh, polarized and divided days.
0: Yeah, and, and to help us understand the the reverse when we refuse forgiveness, when we don't go through that uh, difficult process, or like I, I'm never going to forgive that person, what does that do to us? Because we think it's we're doing something to them, but what does it actually, in your opinion, do to us when we refuse to offer forgiveness?
3: Well, I think it harms us very deeply on a number of levels. First of all, it, it blinds us to the beauty of the gospel. When we're mm. unwilling to forgive someone, we put up blinders that prevent us from seeing the way God in Christ has forgiven us. And so I think it blinds us to the beauty of the gospel. I think it robs the people around us of that illustration of the gospel. If I'm unwilling to forgive somebody in my life, I basically paint a picture to all of my neighbors and my family members that God isn't really willing to forgive them. Yeah, and so yeah. it hurts my own understanding of the gospel. It hurts other other um, others understanding of the gospel. One of the things I love about the, that letter from Paul to Philemon. And towards the end, he says, um, uh, "Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ." It's Paul's way of saying, "Philemon, if you forgive Onesimus, you're going to encourage me. Hmm. Please do that." So I think I think it, it hurts us. It hurts those around us, and it, uh, we have an opportunity to refresh their hearts in Christ. Mm-hmm.
2: Oh, that's so good, Jeff. Um, you know, this is a question we often ask pastors who are on the show or people in ministry. But here we are talking about forgiveness. Here we are talking about the influence of social media on Christians. Generally speaking, do you feel hopeful for the church right now?
3: I do. I do. I, I feel I feel very hopeful for the church right now. On, on the one hand, we, we simply have the, the words of our Lord Jesus Christ to, to give us great hope when it comes to the church. Mm-hmm. That's um, right. On the other hand, for all of the ills that we see, um, there's a lot of good going on in the church. And, uh, I think it's important for us to remember not to always trust the first headline we read. <laughs> let's, let's mm. let, let's let the stories come out. And I'm very encouraged when I talk to my, my neighbors and my brothers and sisters in the church, uh, more than I, I just read the, um, the, the biased headline about them. Mm. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm very hopeful, when I think about the church.
0: That's great. And Jeff, as we close this up, uh, we spent the first part of the interview just really focused on your Gospel Coalition article, a lot about deep thinking and the dangers that that come with just constantly scrolling, social media, the digital world, all of this stuff. Uh, For somebody out there, uh, like a lot of us who just scroll a lot and and maybe we're like, yeah, I'm feeling convicted of that, but it's kind of overwhelming. Uh, What's one thing you want to leave people? Like, What's one
3: first step people can take to like start getting a handle on this? That's a great question. The the very first step or the the first step I would give them is to find one verse in the Bible that they can memorize and meditate on. And if you can't memorize or meditate on a whole verse, find a phrase and Mm -hmm. just meditate on that and put your phone away, take a walk, do whatever you need to do, but meditate on that phrase. Absolutely. That's a really good word, man.
0: Again, Jeff Mingy is the lead pastor of uh, Catalyst Church in Newport News, Virginia, also the author of Forgiveness, A Risk Worth Taking, uh, and the article what we, that we've been discussing, What If Luther Had Picked Up His Phone. Jeff, you have a book coming out on exercising dominion in a digital world. Uh, I want you
3: to let people know, when is that coming out? When When can we be looking for that? That's a great question. We're looking for a publisher now, so we don't have a release date, but I'm excited to get one. It's going to be a great book from all that
0: you've said. Uh, I'm not a publisher, but if any publishers are listening, I'd contact Jeff. I think it will be a good book as well. <laughs> uh, job, Jeff, Jeff, it's great to have you, man. Thanks for coming back on. This is a really important topic. Thanks for this, bud. Thank you all so much for having me. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.
2: everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. I'm Aubrey Sampson, joined by my co-host Brian Fromm, and we're closing out the show today talking about the American church, which is always a really good topic to talk about. Speaking of the American church, Brian, when did you start going to church? Did you grow up in church?
0: I did. I grew up. De- I, there's no point in my life where I don't remember being a part of the church, and not ah, only I love that uh, we were always part of the same church growing up. So uh, from the, my earliest memory till I left for college, same church. My <gasps> best friend's dad was our pastor. No
2: way. And
0: yeah, yeah, very formative. Like a youth pastor who I loved. Um, yeah, so I have no memory. We were actually that family who like if the church was open we were there you know what i mean like <laughs> yes, it was yeah. always there my my earliest memory or my parents you know my dad on the elder board or my mom running this and this like very church was a huge huge part of our life how about you
2: i love that you know my my parents were both raised in church but they actually both walked away from god as young adults and oh, wow. yep yeah, and so I, I this will be i'll try to make the story short but some some Kind of traumatic things happen in our family life. We had to move from uh, Atlanta, Georgia, to Oklahoma when I was uh, just starting middle school, and my parents felt like that was God saying it is time for you to come back. And so, the first time I ever walked in the church was the first time I heard the gospel, and that was just before starting sixth grade. So wow. I didn't, I didn't have the early sort of childlike years in church, but I definitely had formative years as a junior higher and a middle schooler. In church, I came to Christ in a Southern Baptist church, ironically, with the Southern Baptist Convention happening right now. Um, and so, so yeah, they're there. I, I always like hearing stories of people who grew up in church and, right. you know, because I do think the church is, uh, as we're going to talk about right now, the church is. A beautiful, beautiful, beautiful bride, and the church is also a really, really messy place. In <laughs> it's fact, complex. Um, it's complex. <laughs> there we go. Tish Harrison Warren, who is an author, she's an Anglican priest. She's been on the show before. She's a. We call her a friend of the show more um, than
0: once, so she's a yeah, friend. Yes, yeah,
2: we really like her. She wrote an article for Christianity Today called "The American Church Is a Mess," but I'm still. Hopeful. And she's talking about the recently leaked letters from Russell Moore describing the, again, the overt racism, the toleration of sexual abuse inside of the SBC. She's talking about some other leadership problems in Christian institutions, thirst for power self-defensiveness, you know, things like that. But somehow in the middle of it, she finds hope, which I think is really powerful. And here's what she says, because of the Holy Spirit and the Spirit's presence in the church. So what do you think about that, Brian?
0: I think I wanted, I thought it was good that we're ending the show with uh, writings from Tish Harrison Warren, because it's what a lot of us are feeling right now with the political season we came through with, we've been talking Southern Baptist stuff, but also just COVID and people wrestling with like, do I even want to go back the church, I, I had an yeah. elder meeting last night and we were just talking about like, what's going on, not just in our church, but just people in general, right? Like mm-hmm. as they come out of COVID. And so the church... Uh, kind of fundamentally, I think for a lot of people is kind of an open question right now. And, and so she does, she starts really dark in this about like all the problems, the deconstructing we see going on, the backbiting, the politics. And, and you kind of start to read this and you're like, Yeah. Like, where's the hope? And it's something you and I, we we make a habit of doing, especially when we have pastors on. We just ask them, like, are you hopeful Mm -hmm. uh, for the church? And I can't tell you how many people I've yet to have anybody on our show say I'm not hopeful.
2: Yeah, that's so uh, encouraging. They all say I'm
0: hopeful. But they often will say. I'm hopeful, but I'm not always optimistic. Yes. And you're like, okay. Yes. Uh, and she talks about, like, I love this paragraph. She says, I, I don't know that there's enough books and enough stress. She says it's easy to double down on strategy that we need better mm-hmm. programs or better discipleship. We need more magazines and schools and ministries and this and that. Uh, but she says each year the problems seem more complex and the darkness within our institution seems more distressing. And so she says this, but I believe in the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Because of this, I believe that God is far more invested in purifying and strengthen his, strengthening his church than I am. I therefore live in the full knowledge that I cannot predict the future. I can't even take a guess decline narratives be damned. She says, "I my hope for the church is not that we're going to figure out better methodology Mm. or that we're going to figure out better programming. Those are important. But she ultimately says her hope for the church lies in the Holy spirit. And the fact that it's, it's, it's God who says my church will not be defeated. And, and I think that's a really important way to end a really important to frame these conversations about the church that yeah. it's not on our shoulders. We play a huge role, but it's not ultimately us who are going to either improve the church or destroy the church, right? Like that guy, it's the Holy spirit at work through this broken institution of people, that's where our hope needs to lie when we talk about the church.
2: Yeah, that's that's so good. And and I also think just this posture of, you know, there's so many people right now that are critical of the church in Christendom. Like we're being, I think, rightly critical of ourselves. But sometimes you can get lost in that and that can cause bitterness and that can cause cynicism. And to step back and go, wait, wait. <laughs> This isn't our deal. This is God's deal. And the Lord loves his church more than we could ever even imagine. And the Holy Spirit is at work in the church and beautiful things are happening and will continue to happen. And so I, I do think sometimes it is, it is just wise to step away from the screen, step away from the debate, step away from the madness and remember who the church is as defined by God and Put our hope, of course, in Jesus, in the Holy Spirit, in the Father God, and trust like, hey, it will be okay. We will rise, you know? That's
0: right. Let let me read how she ends her article. She says the fact because she's such a great writer like when you're you're a writer do you like do you just get drawn to beautiful writing or do you get envious of beautiful writing both both and right
2: like like I learn I learn from writers like Tisha Harrison Warren from from my friend Ann Voskamp who are just so like they are wordsmiths but then I'm also of course you know the humanity in me is also like oh man why did they do that that way and I did (laughs) it
0: she writes the fact is things are bad in the American church I'm not optimistic they will get better but I'm not pessimistic either. Mm-hmm. Jesus is risen from the dead. We need to truly understand and mourn the broken state of the American church. I'll keep having conversations with friends and fellow church leaders, keep weeping over the state of the church, keep working and see- seeking repentance and renewal. And I have great reason for hope. It's not a strategy. A new book, a new political candidate, or a new initiative. The Holy Spirit is at work. That is enough for me for today. Amen. That's great perspective there from Tish Harrison Warren going, Hey, no matter if things are just prospering or struggling, no matter if we're prospering or struggling as we look at the church, ultimately, uh, Jesus is on the throne. The Holy Spirit is at work. The church is God's method for reaching the world. And therefore, we can not only have hope, but it drives us to be invested in the church, even when sometimes it's frustrating and, and we are just kind of wringing our hands and going, what in the world is going on? We can trust in the Holy Spirit's work.
2: Oh, amen. You're just preaching. I kind of feel like I was at Brian From's church this then. That was You're good. You're welcome. Yeah. Thanks for that. No, that's such a good perspective. It's such a good encouragement for all of us. So thanks. Thanks for that, friend, Tish Harrison Warren. And thanks for that encouraging word, Brian Fromm. Well, we are so grateful to you for joining us today on The Common Good. We hope to see you back tomorrow from 4 to 6. For Brian Fromm. I'm Aubrey Sampson. And you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life.